to the GBC Sermon Podcast from Gaimia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. This message from our Sunday church service is part of the resources we provide as we seek to see lives changed by Jesus. You could also listen to our Big Three podcast, a conversation that unpacks three big questions raised from sermons like this one. You can find more information about Gaimia Baptist Church as well as discipleship resources and an opportunity to join us in person or online on our website, gaimiabaptist.org.au. The Bible reading this morning comes from Revelation chapter 21, reading verses 1 to 5. In the NIV, it's subtitled, A New Heaven and a New Earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Thank you, Sue. Thank you, Jerry. Good morning. It's great to have you with us this morning, whether you're online or here on site, as we continue to look at some contemporary issues from the perspective of faith. Uh, Today, turning our attention to climate care, uh, which should not be that surprising. We dealt with this actually not in the not not too distant past, but felt that it was appropriate to go back to it again, uh, just because it continues to be such an important uh, news item, shall we say. Uh, And uh, if you've been paying attention, as I think most of us have, you'll know that there has been an increasing desire for us to do something about the environment, right? Uh, it's, uh, it's the impact of having once-in-a-lifetime weather events happen every two or three years, right? Uh, and the extraordinary cost that that has brought to us that has finally kind of got the attention, not only of uh, kind of your average person in the street, but also of our political leaders and institutions and organizations. And so there's kind of this ongoing push to be involved in climate care, to be involved in creation care, to be involved in environmental concerns. And we see it all over the place, right? We hear about it all the time. And it's worth kind of taking some time to reflect on that from the perspective of faith, because it can seem a little bit like we are jumping onto a bandwagon, doesn't it? You know, it's something really popular in our culture, something really popular in our community, something really pressing in our community. And so here we are finding some theological justifications to be able to jump on board. And I will admit that it is important that we don't just do that willy-nilly. 
that we don't kind of take any idea that's really popular, that we don't just take any kind of trend in our society and try to kind of justify it and baptize it with some sort of, you know, theology and Bible so that we can kind of say, oh, we now we can be involved in that too. That is a dangerous place to be if we don't do that with a lot of thought. But I think when we're talking about something like creation care, there is actually some really significant alignment of values of what our society is interested in and what Scripture would say is part of our commission and our call as followers of Jesus. Creation care seems to be a place where God is at work in the world. And that's the important kind of critical piece to what we want to think about this morning. Where is God at work in the world? Uh, I don't know about you, but I think sometimes we can have a perspective of God that he created the whole world, kind of you know, put the string in, ripped it out, went, sent it spinning into the cosmos, and now it's just kind of waiting for everything to wind down when he'll step in at the end. And yet our theology, our belief is that God is at work in the world. He's at work in our lives. I think all of us would point to times when we have encountered God in some way, shape, or form, whether it's in Scripture or through circumstances or through other people or you know, in the created order itself. We know that God is at work. So when we talk about something like creation care, when we talk about the environment, when we talk about climate change and the impact that we're seeing, I think we have to believe that God is at work in that space too. That uh, God is not in heaven kind of watching Greta Thunberg and all of the, you know, the environmentalists going, that is a good idea. Why didn't I think of that? God is at work. God is at work in the world that this is not just some sort of accident. This is not some sort of coincidence that this is in fact an area where we are being invited to engage, that we're in being invited to participate with what God is doing. This is a, a key part of, shall we say, of our Christian ethic, that God's at work and that part of our job is to figure out where he's at work and to get involved. And there is, as I said, a fair alignment between the values of many who would not be people of faith but are concerned for the environment and Christians. Uh, we might use different language, but there's a bunch of similarities in terms of those values. So, for instance, think about some of the rationale that's given for why we should be concerned for the environment. Well, there are things like we should care for those in the world who are impacted most by climate change, whether it be the islands that are slowly being flooded as sea levels rise or those nations that simply cannot afford the cataclysmic weather events that happen with an increasing regularity. We want to be people who, according to the law of love, would be concerned for those on the other end of our decisions. It's kind of why we're engaged where we can be in ethical consumerism, isn't it? The whole idea that I would rather pay a little bit more for a product on this end if by doing so I can make sure that the people who are on the other end actually have a fair living, right? And me saving five bucks or 20 bucks is just not worth taking food from the mouths of those who can least afford it. And so the law of love would suggest that, yeah, we should probably do what we can to minimize the impact of climate where we are able to. A similar line of reasoning would be that what, you know, what kind of planet are we leaving for our children or for our children's children? And Scripture has a number of particularly proverbs that speak about the importance and, and the fact that the wise leave a good inheritance for their children. And we'd probably want to leave a good inheritance for our children, not just in terms of finances or whatever the case might be, but of the world in which we live, an alignment of values. 
Uh, we might also con consider that you know, one of the critiques of the, the, the current situation we find ourselves in is that corporate greed and materialism that's all wrapped up in capitalism has contributed to the mess we're in. And we would look at that and we would have slightly different terminology for it, wouldn't we? We would say, yes, that is absolutely true because of the power and impact of sin in our world. We don't have to look very far in Scripture to see the impact of sin on the physical world. Uh, when Adam and Eve were in the garden and after the fall, as it's so called, one of the impacts is on the created order, isn't it? Adam is told that the world will still be fruitful, that there will still be plenty of, uh, of food, but you will have to work for it. There will be thorns and there will be thistles and it will be more complicated. Paul, the apostle, talks about all creation groaning in anticipation. Uh, there's references all through scripture to the fact that cr the created order points to the creator, that it reflects something of his glory, that we are called to be a part and parcel of that. Sin has impacted that, and we could identify with that. And finally, there would be those who would say that we bear a particular responsibility to, uh, to care for the earth because it is, shall we say, in the broadest sense, our mother. And again, our language would differ on that, wouldn't it? Now, we don't believe that the created order is itself divine. Now, we don't really speak much about the mo mother earth in that sense. But we do believe, don't we? that God created the world, and that therefore there is something about this world that is not just kind of a lump of rock that's really cleverly somethinged? Wouldn't we believe that this is our Father's world and that therefore we do have a responsibility? And again, even if we just kind of thought that kind of logically, we could turn to Scripture and see that that's also still true, that the commission given to the first couple in the garden has never been repealed to rule the world which is not just about dominion and about figuring out how to master it as much as it is about caring for it because it is the Lord's, about caring for it because we have been called to bring about the kingdom on earth. And so again, while the language might be different, you see the alignment of values? It's not actually all that complicated or hard for us as Christians to say, yeah, we should be on board with caring for the environment, with caring for the created order. But there is actually a bit of a, a tension point for us in it. It's kind of contained in this reading in Revelation 21. Uh, apocalyptic literature, I'm surprised how often we've gotten there in January, but hey, who would have thought, right? Uh, and, and apocalyptic literature, of course, speaks of things, funnily enough, in apocalyptic terminology. And so when it says here that there is a new heaven and a new earth for the first had passed away, and I ask you, what do you think it means when it says that passed away? We tend to think of it in apocalyptic terms. We needed a new one because the old one had been destroyed, right? We needed a new television because our old one blew up, right? We needed a new whatever it is because the old one no longer exists, I lost that thing and now I need a new one. The earth has passed away, which raises the question, if the earth is going to pass away in apocalyptic fashion, then why bother? Right? I mean, it's nice. I mean, you know, kind of, you know, we can recycle some stuff and that's helpful. But at the end of the day, it's just all going in the trash anyway, so which is where theology is a little bit unhelpful. 
then why are we getting involved in creation care at all when in reality we just need to kind of make sure this one lasts until it, well, until Jesus comes back and then we're good. So we have to ask the question, what's going on here with the new? What do we mean by the new earth? And so I want to I take uh, some time to have a look at this passage, but primarily by looking at the passage that it's based upon. If you have your Bible with you or have it on your phone, or even if you remember how it started on the screen behind me when uh, Sue was reading, you might note that it says, then I saw, verse 1, quote, a new heaven and a new earth, end quote. In other words, John, the translators believe, is quoting somebody else, some other text. And if your Bible's like mine, there's a little letter A after uh, that, a quote, which tells us that this is actually found in Isaiah 65, uh, starting in verse 17. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 65. Because what we have here is an example of intertextuality, uh, kind of an English, uh, English literature term, which basically is the reality that when you take an older text and you refer to it in a new text, there are similarities and there are differences, right? There are similarities and there are differences. So for instance, if I were to describe my courtship with Nicole as a real Romeo and Juliet affair, you'd have to ask yourself, okay, what does he mean by that? Because there are some obvious differences between Romeo and Juliet and Nicole and I. We're not dead, right? Uh, we're about to, we'll have our 29th uh, wedding anniversary this year. So that's not what I mean. So you'd have to ask, well, what else might he mean? Is it that there was some sort of, you know, uh, did their families not get along? Was there a forbidden element of their relationship? Like, that, that, that's what you would have to do. What are the similarities and what are the differences to figure out what I mean by that? Now, I should probably clarify, I never describe my relationship with Nicole or our courtship as a Romeo and Juliet affair because there's nothing in common with that story at all, apart from there was, well, no, there's nothing in common with that. So I was going to say it was a romance, but I'm like, no, it's a tragedy. No, we're fine. <laughs> But do you understand my point? So when John here takes Isaiah 65 in a new context, he wants us to think about what is similar and what is different. And so if you have your, if, you have, if I've given you enough time now to find Isaiah 65, let me read for you from Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. See, the Lord says, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as in the days of a tree, so it will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This passage is what informs Revelation 21. And there's a couple of things I think we need to kind of answer then. One of which is, what's different 
between Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21. And it's primarily in the, 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 the audience to whom it is addressed. Most of Isaiah is best understood as being written to those who were experiencing exile, who had been taken from their homeland, their ancestral homeland in Judea, and taken to a land far away. The the temple, the sign of God's presence in their midst, had been destroyed. The city of Jerusalem, the symbol of God's reign and rule on the earth, had been destroyed. The king through whom God reigned had been taken away. The people were no longer on the promised land. All of the symbols of the covenant had seemingly been taken away, and they were being challenged to live in faith to actually live hopefully that there would be a restoration. They were waiting for their restoration and were being tempted to live in the immediate and in the here and now, to withdraw from the hope of the future and just make do with what they could. And Isaiah wants to encourage them to move into that future hope, to live as if that were the reality. In Revelation 21, John is not addressing a group of people who are awaiting their restoration. He's, in fact, writing to a group of people who are oppressed, who are waiting for their deliverance, but who are also being tempted to withdraw from their future deliverance and live in the present, to set aside their hope for the future, their trust in the promises of Jesus, and just try to make it through the day right here and right now tempted to trust in the power of Rome and the power of the emperors and just try to compromise in such a way to live a really nice life now and just not worry about it. And John reminds them that there is something new coming and it is coming really soon. Which brings us to the question of what kind of new we're talking about. Because in Isaiah 65, the new is not brand new, There is a continuity with the old. Did you hear it? When God speaks, he says, Be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight for its people. This is not a new city. This isn't new Jerusalem. This isn't some sort of kind of different place. No, it is Jerusalem, but it is unlike any Jerusalem you've ever experienced. Because all the misfortune is gone. All the hardship is gone. All the suffering is gone. It is completely and utterly new, but there is a continuity between them. It is like, if you will allow me this distinction, how my iPhone is new compared to the old rotary phones. Anyone remember the old rotary phones? Yeah, you're my people, right? This phone is not really new, is it? Because it's still a phone. I can still call you on it and we can have a conversation, just like we could on an old rotary phone. But this phone is so different from the old rotary phones. It is so much more powerful. It has so much more connectivity that I can speak of the iPhone as something new. Because the old has passed away. But do you see the connections between the two of them? 
The Jerusalem that God promises in, Re- in, in Isaiah 65 is going to be like the old one, but so different that you would be confused to so say you'd be forgiven if you thought it was utterly, utterly new. And the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth that John sees in Revelation 21 will be similar to the old, but there's a continuity and it will be so different that you would be forgiven in thinking that it is utterly different. But there's a difference of kind, of character, of quality, not of type. Does that make sense? This is the new that we are waiting for. It's based, similarly, shall we say, on the doctrine of resurrection. When we are given our resurrected bodies, they will be new. But we believe that there will be a continuity with the old. If Jesus' resurrected body is anything to go by, we will be recognizable to one another, even in our new bodies. When Jesus appears, there's a little bit of confusion, mostly because they thought he was dead, right? There's a little bit of confusion, but then they recognized him. Rabbi. And then he showed them the scars in his hands and in his side. There's continuity and new. This, this is what Revelation points to. So when we come back to the issue of creation care and the new heaven and the new earth, It is important for us to recognize that what we are aiming for and participating in is the renewal of this earth. And there may may very well be some miraculous components of that that God alone will be able to do. But we are invited to participate in that hope, just as John's audience was, just as Isaiah's audience was in chapter 65. And this, this then is the major takeaway from the new heavens and the new earth. That you and I are being invited to participate in the renewal of all things, including the created order. That's it. That's the application. So if you want to reduce and reuse and recycle, knock yourself out. I don't believe that those three R's are the application of Revelation 21. But it's not a bad way to go forward, would it be? To reduce how much we use and to reduce how much we waste and to reuse the things that we can and recycle the things that we can't in order to reduce the amount of waste that we use to care for our world. And there are lots of other things that we can be engaged in. There's no end of opportunities for us to figure out how to care for the created order. There's lots of places for us to be engaged and involved in that work. And I think the important thing for us to kind of take away as we reflect on this is that um, the renewal and restoration of God is not confined to those things that we might define as spiritual in our lives. The restoration and renewal of God is not confined to just those spiritual parts of our lives. You know, I I think every so often uh, we, uh, I think sometimes we reduce the work of Jesus to just forgiving sins. Now hear me out on this one. That's a pretty big reduction, isn't it? Because that's a pretty important part of what Jesus did. But when Jesus arrives, when he begins his public ministry, I find it really striking that he doesn't talk much at all about forgiveness of sins. 
Do you remember his, the summary of his preaching ministry? The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom. There's so much more to that than simply the forgiveness of sins. But if all we see Jesus doing is forgiving our sins, we kind of remove him from caring for the creation. Because he's forgiven my sins and we're done, and I can now that that's taken care of, I can get on with the rest of my life. This reminds us that the restoration and renewal that God promises is in every single area of our lives, which means our discipleship is in every area of our lives. When you take out, in Oyster Bay, where I live, yellow bins go out tonight, which is good because it's full. It's a spiritual exercise taking that thing out. Not that I think about it that way very often. I'm just happy I remembered. And I want to know who the person is on our street that everyone else, remind, like who reminds everyone else, because I can never remember, but somebody gets it right every week and we all feed off them. Is it the same in your street? Right? But that's a spiritual exercise. There is something in taking those things out to be recycled, however they may or may not be recycled, how effectively that might be, be done, but where I am seeking to be part of the restoration renewal of all things. Every part of our lives is part of our discipleship as followers of Jesus. And I think that's a pretty important takeaway too. And so it's appropriate, I reckon, for us to jump on the bandwagon of environmentalists to jump on the bandwagon of creation care and to be a part of the restoration renewal of all things. I think it's helpful also to recognize that when we do so, we actually have a socially acceptable way to be Christians in our world. I mean, who's going to get on you for being a Christian and being involved in recycling? Well, anybody, really. When we connect our faith in our own lives to our everyday activities, reducing, reusing, recycling, when we uh, do something to care for creation, not just because it's probably a good thing to do or because I have the opportunity to, but because I'm a follower of Jesus, that gives us an opportunity then to talk about how our faith informs our actions in really practical, pragmatic, socially acceptable ways. An opportunity to talk about Jesus in a way that might be a little bit unexpected, but might not also be as, um, might not be a situation where the walls go up quite so quickly. So let's jump on the bandwagon. Or perhaps, better yet, why don't we drive the bandwagon? Church as a whole has generally not been great at driving bandwagons. Or if we do, they tend to be outdated and nobody wants to follow them anymore. You know where the phrase bandwagon came from? It came from the circus and uh, the end of the 1800s. P.T. Barnum apparently came up with the idea. The circus would set up outside of town, and then they had an elaborately decorated wagon, upon which was a band. And they just drove through the town or the village or the city, drumming up interest and driving a crowd out to the circus. Very quickly, it got picked up by politicians, which kind of keeps the circus theme going at least, right? But the whole idea was that you would drum up interest, you drum up curiosity and let people know the circus is in town. This is a great event. Come on out. Very quickly became quite a negative term to jump on the bandwagon, right? 
those who have been on the wagon for a while and people jump on, I think we tend to have a little bit of disdain for them, right? That's how that works. But I think we need to be people who are actually driving the bandwagon on creation care, drumming up interest and drumming up support, drumming up curiosity and letting people know that there's more afoot. Not that the circus is in town, but that there is a plan afoot to renew and restore all things, including the created order. And ultimately, ultimately, to draw attention not just to our interest in environment, but to draw our interests and curiosity in the Creator, the one who made all things and who has promised to renew all things. So do with that what you will. If you were to walk away with anything, I'd love you to walk away with the idea that plans and purposes of God to renew and restore everything includes everything. So your discipleship might be a lot simpler than you might think. Your discipleship might be a lot more present than you might think. There might be some really practical things that you can do as a follower of Jesus to participate in his grand plan to restore and renew everything. So I'd like to invite the team back up. We're going to uh, conclude our service in song uh, as uh, we have opportunity to. And as they join me, can I invite you to join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for your creation. It is beautiful. Uh, many of us have experienced uh, the wonder of the created order, have marveled at what we have seen or witnessed, uh, have recognized your fingerprints in the created order and praise you for it. We thank you that you have granted to us a role in caring for creation. That in the commission that you gave to humanity at the very beginning, to rule over, to care over, to steward the created order, that still stands for us. And even though we are not always particularly focused, we've not always done a particularly good job of it, we do recognize that right now, in our cultural moments, in our history, there seems to be a wonderful opportunity for us to be involved in what you are doing, to participate in the renewal of the created order. I pray for each of us that as we consider that invitation, that you might invite us, you might be clear about the ways in which we can be disciples of Jesus as we are involved in the care for our world. We pray that we might be aware of uh, the differences in values, that we might be aware of uh, what makes our care of the created order uniquely Christian, but that ultimately we would be involved in this way, that we might be those who uh, participate with you wherever we find it, whether it be in the created order, whether it be in sharing a little bit about Jesus with those that we know and love, it's praying for those that we know and love and work with, and it's how we live our lives in other areas, but in everything, maybe be those who participate. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this message has challenged and strengthened you, encouraged you to pray and rely on God, and blessed you today. If you'd like to get to know some of our church community, you can listen to the We Are The Church podcast an open conversation with real people who call GBC home as they share stories of God at work in their lives and how their lives are being changed by Jesus.